0: Welcome to the Therapeutic Food Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Mitchell. I'm an integrative nutrition health coach, therapeutic diet expert, and founder of The Road to Living Whole. There are many different diets out there. It's hard to know which one is right for you with your chronic illness and autoimmune disease. In this podcast, I'm going to share with you the foundational pieces every single therapeutic diet out there shares, and also how to use the best one for your particular diagnosis. If you've been looking for a meal planning partner, help navigating the complicated healthcare system, and want to feel better quickly, I'm your girl. Grab your kombucha notebook, let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Today's topic I am super excited about. It's why changing your lifestyle can improve body regulation and restoration and combat chronic disease. And I have Dr. Diane Mueller joining me today, and she has an incredible story to share and so much helpful information. Dr. Diane, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, thank you so much, Mariah. I'm really excited to be talking about this topic. Yeah, before we really dive into this, would you mind telling us who you are, where you're located, your area of expertise, and kind of what brought you on this journey to chronic illness? Sure, yeah. So I'm
1: Dr. Diane Mueller. Like you said, I am based out of the Lakewood, Golden, Colorado area, but so much of what I do these days is telemedicine and online. So I'm really, you know, based around the world these days. And I got into this sort of medicine as far as holistic work, as far as chronic disease work, like so many of us through my own own health journey. So that started as a very young child with really severe chronic constipation, really severe bloating. By the time I was in high school, I remember getting to a point where I was traveling with multiple size pants. So like anywhere between like a size four or six, all the way up to a 16, because I did not know how bloated I was going to be in any sort of day. So it was like really, really wild what was happening to my body on a day-to-day basis. And nothing could, like none of the normal lab tests, that sort of thing were eliciting anything. So because of all of that, that was part of how I ended up in naturopathic medical school and started looking for the root cause of things. But when I was in school, symptoms got a lot worse. I got chronic headaches. I was having really really weird depersonalization symptoms where I would feel very out of body and I would forget where I lived and the whole like world would almost distort like I was hallucinating. I was having this, this numbness and tingling some days pain so bad that I couldn't walk and would have to be carried. So it was a totally, total, total, total mess. I was a mess. And it wasn't until I got out of school, because when I was in school, it was just kind of looked at as like medical school syndrome, medical school, super stressful, all of that. And then once I got out of school and my colleagues started saying like their vitality was coming back and they were healing and I was getting worse. And that's when I started running a lot more investigative type of tests on myself. And I found SIBO, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, ton of parasites, Lyme disease, mold illness, toxic metals, on and on and on and on, a widespread of hormonal imbalances. So it's basically, I mean, almost everything that I treat in my clinical practice for better or worse, I had, I I was a disaster, but I am, you know, doing super well now. Everything is reversed and feel better than I did even in my teens, which is super amazing.
0: That's it's incredible. You've come to the other side of it, but like, I guess in another way, it's almost a blessing that you went through that because you're able to really empathize with your patients. Like, it's not like a clinical observation, but like a, yeah, no, I've been there. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to feel like you're going crazy. And all of that stuff, because we always feel like for one, because, you know, there's no test, they assume that you're making it up, you know, or they just don't know what to do. So they do nothing or they throw a bunch of pills at it. Like, it's just, it's a hot mess. Um, You know, and even then, even in school, they're like, oh, it's just because you're stressed out, which I mean, it could be, you know, but that's just, that's crazy.
1: Yeah. It's wild. And like you said, it's like, there can be so many things. And, and so for many people, and then since today's going to be lifestyle, right. What we're talking about, it's like for many people, it's like starting with some of the lifestyle things when, especially when we're told like, Oh, it's all in your head, which I've been doing this for twelve years. I have not met one person who it's actually all in their head. So, you know, sure that could be an occasional, occasional, occasional exception. But for ninety nine nine you know, percent of people, I think it's a very real thing. And one of the great things about doing some of the lifestyle things that we're going to talk about today is, in a lot of ways, it's ruling things out. It's really looking at and saying, okay, well. It's not because of diet. It's not because of poor sleep. It's not because of how you think and how you deal with stress and all these other types of lifestyle things. We'll talk about it. Like once we rule those things out and you're doing a lot of those great things and you still feel bad, that's usually a red flag for the right tests or have not been ordered. And there's something going on and you need to be working with somebody who's going to actually go deeper than kind of that standard level of testing to figure out the root cause.
0: Yeah. I love that you talk about that because, you know, especially when people are dealing with chronic illness and had symptoms, you know, since childhood, they want to go right for the tests and you're like, well, first got to rule things out. So it's like, are you doing these things? And I, I just, I love that you touched on that. I do want to talk a little bit more about your journey and can you share with us kind of the process you went through to eliminate and discover the, the big hitters that you had, I mean, you had, you had all of the things you had lime and parasites and SIBO and mold and, you know, heavy metals. And like, so the, like you had like everything in the kitchen sink thrown at you. So it's like, I feel like people who are in the same boat, they're going to kind of want to maybe see insight into what that process can look like for them. Can you share that with us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I did, you know, take my own advice and I started with a lot of the lifestyle types of things. So back in the early 2000s was when I really started becoming more oriented to health. And I tried all sorts of diets that were available at that point in time. And so at that point in time, you know, there wasn't keto diet on, you know, that hadn't hit yet those types of things. So it was more things like trying veganism and um, like Mediterranean diets. And I even went to do um, raw food diets. I tried water fast and master cleanse with the maple syrup, cayenne lemon, so I basically tried all sorts of different things like that. Was working on my mindset, got into um, meditation and, and qigong back in two thousand and four. So I was doing some of those things. Got had gone through long periods of giving up alcohol to make sure that wasn't impacting me. So tried lots of like the basics, you know, basic stuff. maximize my sleep. Was working on stress resiliency and that sort of stuff. And so had already had that pretty dialed by the time I realized that something was definitely not working, that it was definitely not medical school syndrome. And then it was honestly just going through or kind of organ system by organ system to say, what test actually do I need? And unfortunately for so many people, I think the one of the biggest problems with the medical model right now is that We're very oriented to disease, like testing with like connection to organs. And what I mean by that is like somebody has a constipation issue or diarrhea issue, and we might look and do things like a small intestinal bacteria overgrowth test or a stool culture to look for microbes in the gastrointestinal tract. But oftentimes that's like the limit other than the conventional things, colonoscopies, that sort of thing. And it's one of the biggest things that I think is really important in answer to this like lab test type of question, what do we do? Where do we go? Is really remembering that the body is connected. So if we have some sort of infection or toxin, for example, such as Lyme disease, such as Bartonella infection, which can come from cat scratches. These types of things, these types of infections can actually attack the vagal nerve, the nerve that runs our digestion, one of the main nerves that does. And when that happens, we can get digestive, like digestive say dysfunction from these systemic infections that we're not going to find by doing any sort of gut test. So, if we're going to stage say the tests and the order that we run the tests, it is definitely good to consider. If we can't run everything at, you know, at once, we might consider like sure if like if you're having things that seem like a hormonal issue, right? If you're a female and you're having dysfunctional cycles or menopause is really hard for you, we absolutely you know, want to do some of the basic testing, looking at hormones in that example, or looking at gut tests in that example. But if you run some of the basic tests that are associated with that organ system, and it's like, gosh, nothing is fixing this, we really need to think outside the box and look more at some of these things such as infections and toxins, that can actually cause systemic problems and cause problems to a lot of different organs and glands, no matter where the infection is actually located.
0: That's I think really helpful. And I, I find that, you know, there's different like models that doctors tend to follow and some do just run the test based on symptoms. And a lot of that's driven by cost, right? Patients don't want to spend, I mean, I really feel like the it's, it feels expensive if you're in the insurance model mindset, but when you're in the holistic mindset, I feel like, you know, four to $700 in tests is really quite affordable for what we're looking at. And if you're dealing with a lot of complex chronic illness, it's really worth it because you get the answers, you know, go from there. So you did all these tests and you, and you got all these things. What kind of, timeline did it look at like did you look at to start feeling better and good
1: yeah and for me it's like i i get asked this question a lot and i feel like it's one of the most complicated things for me to answer because um, because in part, like my symptoms started at such a young child, right? So it's like, we could look at a timeline and we could be like, oh gosh, this was like a 25 year process. But I, I, I don't like to look at it from that standpoint, because it really, I think, can send a missed message of it's going to take that long. So from the timeline, if we start the timeline clock at when I had all of the information. It was about a year before I really started feeling like, oh, totally myself again. By the end of that second year was when I really started feeling like, oh gosh, I'm like better than I used to be. But I also like people to be aware of like that first year when I was really in my intensive treatment, even though like it was a slow progress, I felt so bad that if my energy improved 7%, which doesn't sound like very much, all of a sudden it was like, oh my gosh, I can stand in the kitchen and cook dinner and like not have to take a break and sit down. And so it was like noticeable, like these incremental changes that were really profound in how they changed my life. So even though it took a year, there was so many like little gains along that way to celebrate that were substantial as far as improvement of my
0: day to day. I love that you talk about that because I, you know, I've been health coaching for almost a decade and I've also found that like, especially if people have been feeling so bad, they, they honestly don't know what good feels like. Right. But then I also start the clock at when we have all of the information and, you know, celebrating those small wins because people want to feel good and like, weeks. Right. Cause there's all these like things out there in six weeks, you're going to lose like 15 pounds. And in six weeks, you're going to feel better. Or, My course is this long. And by the end of it, you're going to feel great when really it's like, well, you might be sleeping better. You might have the energy to like, you might, you know, make it to your afternoon nap instead of having to take one in the morning too. And it's like celebrating those little wins, you know, especially with something so complex as what you had going on.
1: Yeah. And I think the other thing I want to add to that is how oriented the brain is naturally to what is wrong. You know, it's like, we don't wake up when we're healthy and think about like, ah, I don't have pain. I don't have headaches. Like, you know, but we do, when we feel bad, we wake up and we think about like all the things that are wrong. Right. Right. And this is really important because it's so easy. I think sometimes for the brain to lose track of progress the, my favorite example of this is I had a patient several years ago. The number one symptom she came to see me for was her face was just like tingling all the time. And it was, you know, really scary from a neurological perspective of like she was really scared about like what that meant for her brain. She had a lot of other symptoms, but we actually, as another example of like changing lifestyle because we ran a bunch of lab tests, we did a bunch of lifestyle changes while we were waiting for the lab test to come back. And I saw her about three weeks later for her lab review and checked in with her and just like, okay, how are you doing with the lifestyle changes? And she just basically rattled on all the things that were not working yet and all the things that were wrong. And I was like, well, okay, how about your face tingling? You didn't mention that. And she looks at me and she's like, Dr. Diane, I completely forgot about it. She's like, it was her number one motivator to come see me. And when that went away, her brain automatically went, you know, to look for all the things that was wrong. And, you know, that's like when you're saying like, oh, the importance of celebrating these little things. I think that's, that's really, it's like a way of motivating ourselves to keep going because if we don't take a moment sometimes to like, you know, think about like, oh, wow, I can't actually do this thing that a week ago I couldn't or two weeks ago I couldn't it's so easy for the brain to move into this you know this giving up or this frustrated state versus actually looking and saying like okay this is actually working i just have to stay the course
0: yes i love that so we've gone through the story this has been such great information so let's share with everybody what these lifestyle things are that can help them with body regulation and restoration and you know, helping with their symptoms. Cause I feel like we've been like, all right, we've done this. We're on the other side. Now it's like, what did we do? What can they do starting today to start feeling better?
1: Yeah. So I know you already do a lot of work with, you know, with diet and that sort of thing. So I won't go too deep into that. Cause I know you're, I, my, my impression is your, um, your community is pretty oriented to that, but just to, you know, make sure we at least mention that, that diet's really important that, There's no one diet that is right for every condition, you know, like even autoimmune, which I know there's a lot of autoimmune listeners here. It's like even that like we can read about like autoimmune paleo and these types of diets. And even though like that's a great starting point, I find for many people, but that's also not the only factor. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So I think just being open from a dietary perspective to trying things, to seeing if it helps, to um, reorienting if it doesn't help is really important. And then to move on from there, I think we need to talk about sleep. And I think we need to talk about sleep because so many people think they're sleeping well. And they're not, or they're legitimately not sleeping well. So it's really interesting to me with, uh, with the types of sleep tracking devices we have, whether it's aura rings or our various watches that that can track things like HRV and breathing regularity and pulse and temperature and depth of sleep and all these different things. And I, I use the aura ring for a while myself to kind of just get a sense of that. I've had a lot of my clients use those rings. And it's pretty interesting to actually see what will impact deep sleep, as well as how many people think they're getting sleep because they're in bed, they fall asleep, it's seven, eight hours, nine hours later, they wake up and they're like, oh, sleep's great. You know, and then we actually test and we look and it's like, well, actually, you barely hit deep sleep, you were tossing and turning all night, like you're not rested, your HRV is not good. And, and these sorts of things. So from a sleep perspective, there are some basics we can think about such as not, you know, not drinking a lot of alcohol, not eating too late. One of the ones though, that I think people do not have enough awareness of yet really comes down to the light at night and to the impact of blue light on our production of melatonin, our sleep hormone. So What's really interesting is when we actually look at what happens when we use red lights, which doesn't have the blue light spectrum in it, as well as when we use dimmer lights at night, the impact on sleep. And I was like, I was amazed when I was doing my own research on this for me personally of like, like I know alcohol affects things. I know eating late affects things, all these different things, but those two things actually do not make an impact on my sleep. They may make an impact on other things. But when I actually track, it's like, that doesn't do it. But the moment I have a tiny little five minute period of a regular light bulb, you know, just a regular standard light bulbs right before bed, my sleep tanks as far as quality. So the point of that in part, as far as eliminating that is one just being aware you know using red light bulbs around your house having some switches on full spectrum lights for when you want light some on red for when you don't and, and that's great and that's good to be aware of but also just like diet the importance of this also is understanding the individuality of this and that for some people like alcohol is going to affect them more than others dehydration is going to affect them more than others red light's going to affect them more than others, so you know, these are some overarching principles of things to consider, but I would absolutely consider getting a sleep tracking device. Even if you just use it for like a month or two to get a sense of what is working and what is not working for you and what's impactful and not impactful, because I think when it comes to sleep, that is the easiest way to actually
0: determine what's happening. I love talking about sleep hygiene because it is, it's like, You know, there's, there's like, when you read through, like if you go on Pinterest or whatever, and you're like, how do you get better sleep or things that impact sleep? And you look through and it's like 10 things that you can do to sleep better. And for me, that's like overwhelming, but it's like, you know, being able to have something to track so you can see if things are working, I think is really motivating. So I love that you talk about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it like data is hugely motivating and then you're right. It's like 10 things, like who has time to manage like these 10 things before bed But if you can get the data and realize, oh, this one thing is the single most important thing, it's a lot easier to wrap one's mind around like, okay, at least if I do this, I'm really setting
0: myself up. And then if I want to add some of these other things, then that can be extra bonuses sometimes as well. Exactly. Cause it is, it's like, you know, I think about myself and eating doesn't impact me either. In fact, I find that if I have kind of a protein snack about an hour before bed, I actually sleep better. Like I sleep throughout mm-hmm. the night and I don't like wake up at like two or 3am, but the light definitely impacts me. Like I keep my house really dim. And when the sun goes down and like I have blue light filters on everything, like I do all of that because that dramatically impacts my ability to sleep. And I, and then I also know if I go to bed, if I fall asleep at 10 versus nine 30, if I fall asleep at 10, my sleep is crap. But if I fall asleep at between nine and nine 30, I'll sleep great. And I wake up refreshed and like, it's just very interesting what impacts things. And you do, you have to trial and error and be willing to not blame yourself when something doesn't work. I think people with chronic illness do that a lot. They're like, Oh, I just didn't do it right. Or something like that. When it's really like, no, that just doesn't impact you the way something else does.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's like that self-blame. There's a couple different places we can go with that. But one place that's worth at least noting is in conventional medicine, things don't work first, second, third time all the time, right? It's like how many people use an antidepressant and they try one and it doesn't work. They try another and then they try another and finally, you know, maybe the fourth or fifth time they find one that works or, how many people go to doctor after doctor and end up in surgery and the surgery doesn't even work. Right. So medicine is, is complicated and it's interesting that there's these principles with conventional medicine around like there is an element of science. Absolutely. But there's also an element of like trial and error that is just kind of where we're at with medicine around trying something that makes scientific sense, seeing how the body responds. So that kind of construct and belief and mechanism is really integrated into conventional medicine, but yet it's so easy when we're p- applying the same principles on ourselves of trial and error to, to get into that self blame. And so I think it's a really important thing you're bringing up and, and just, a you know, reminder for everybody of like the trial and error, that's, that's a normal part of medicine. It doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It just means that's a normal part of health and healing. Yeah, that's why it's called a
0: practice. and we are the ultimate. We are the ultimate experiment on ourselves. We are (laughs) on ourselves too, because like we can get guidance from doctors, and you know it's extremely valuable. But what's going to work for one person is not going to work for another. So,
1: yeah, I love I love
0: talking about that. So, what else? Okay, so we have diet, we have sleep. What's another thing that people can work on? Another big thing
1: is mindset and what is going on in the brain and. There's so many different areas to talk about here. Like one of the things that I'm exploring right now in my own life through some dance classes that I take that are more like personal growth kind of dance classes is the concept of the seven deadly sins. So it's really looking at this concept right that it's like we all as humans have times where you know we might feel anger or wrath or we might feel envy or we might be gluttonous whether it's through food or alcohol or over exercising or binge watching Netflix or whatever it is right so we all have these natural tendencies to sometimes be drawing ourselves out of balance and I think one of the biggest problems with this is that all of these things are, you know, that we're that I'm labeling here for that the seven deadly sins kind of Dante's model labels really is looking at these things as being bad. You know, so we we it's not safe oftentimes in society to be like, "All right, sometimes I do think negative thoughts about myself when I see people that are prettier than me or I see people that are more successful or whatever it is, right?" And so these things are not normalized as normal parts of the human condition, and it's not talked about how we can work with them. So oftentimes what winds up happening in kind of this this self-blame and this victimization type of thing is we have these experiences. We think that we are different than other humans where, you know, it's easy to get into this world of being like, (sighs) <sighs> nobody thinks this way. And therefore it is like the shaming and the self-blaming that come from that. And the problem with that, there's so many different problems with that, but one of them, you know, just from a pure like health and lifestyle perspective comes down to when we start blaming, we start self-shaming, we start doing all these things. Oftentimes what happens is we're raising our adrenaline. We're raising our our cortisol, we're raising these stress hormones, right? And these stress hormones are sending out signals to our body that are oftentimes telling our body to break down tissues instead of repair. So I do think in this blame versus responsibility kind of pendulum, it is definitely important to take responsibility to learn how to work with our thoughts better and learn how to make better decisions. And that's where the responsibility is. But then it's also important not to blame ourselves for having normal human thought process instead kind of be gentle and like, you know what? Everybody has a gluttonous moment. So how can I actually normalize this and be like, yeah, I ate that thing and I overate it because it was really, really, really good. And just acknowledging that. And instead of blaming, just like acknowledging, like that's a, that's a normal human thing to do. And the more we can like acknowledge that versus almost like not look at it and say, Okay, that's not me. I'm going to hide. I'm not going to admit it. That sort of thing. The more we actually don't own it and say that that's part of ourselves, usually the more those those forces actually have power and control over us and make you know uh, uh, cause us to think in ways that take actions that are not helpful. So, I think from the mindset component, there's a lot of different ways we can go here, but finding a way of working with the mind, finding a way of working with these darker say forces inside of us and normalizing them and talking about them and working with them versus shunning them is a huge part of actually gaining control over them and therefore gaining control over our stress response and the impact that has on our health.
0: I absolutely love that. I don't feel like the mind and, and the stress response and how the, the mindset and how that really does impact chronic illness. Like it really, you know, you, you can be eating great and sleeping great and, you know, exercising great, but if you're not dealing with the stuff, even if it's just allowing yourself to not be a perfect human, which there's none of us, right. I feel like we hold ourselves to such a higher standard than we would ever hold anybody that we love and how that impacts chronic illness, because if that's, if your stress is still high and you're beating yourself up mentally because you're not doing things the way you think that you should, like it's going to hold you back from healing and experiencing full health. And it's an ongoing journey. You don't have to be perfect to like experience relief of symptoms. You know, again, we are not going to ever be perfect, but learning how to think about yourself and observe yourself in a way that's full of love versus shame and blame is huge.
1: It's huge. It's huge. And I think just getting to that place brings so much opportunity for peace along the journey, right? Because this is, you know, we're saying, okay, well, this is a one, two year journey, oftentimes for chronic illness, for people feeling, you know, better than ever. And, you know, and sometimes even longer, sometimes shorter, but sometimes even longer. So working with some of these, these tendencies of the mind throughout the journey also can help with kind of enjoying the ride more. Right. And versus being like, oh, everything's going to be great when I get there. Well, okay. Things will be better. And it's going to be great when you can do all the activities that you want, but how can we actually get our mind in a place where we can take advantage of the day that actually is in front of us, even when we don't feel well. And as somebody that's gone through, you know, all the stuff I started this, this episode with, like, I definitely get that. That's way easier said than done, but every day is basically an opportunity to get a little closer to that and get a little closer to what that feels like to, to work on our mind, to work on that stress response and, and all of that.
0: Definitely. And it actually got me thinking about how like healing isn't linear, right? We just don't, it's not like an uphill trajectory, like it's ups and downs and swines and it turns and you're going to ha- feel great one day. And then the next day you're going to, or maybe even next week, you're going to be really tired and exhausted. And maybe your symptoms are flaring up, so to speak. And it's like, I feel like people like mourn and they're like, Oh no, I'm going to be stuck like this forever. Like where my bad days are more than my good days. And being able to shift our mind away from that to a point of grace for one, and accepting that our body is healing, and sometimes it needs more rest to be able to heal and to appreciate that our body's trying to keep us alive. All of that stuff plays such a huge role. That's just like where my mind went because it's like, a, it's literally a practice in gratitude every single day. And it is, you know, and so. I guess I'm going to throw one in there and being like part of this mindset is if you're not, if you have a hard time thinking about the positive in your life, every single night before bed, writing down three or more good things that happened that day and having it in a, on a piece of paper, and you can go back and read and you can actually see how things improve and how your mind's like being able to change your mind from thinking to the negative so much to really trying to see the good in every day.
1: Yeah, I my favorite example of gratitude. I was in the Philippines right before all the covid stuff happened. I was over there for about 3 weeks and that was like, you know, I've I've traveled around the world and seen some impoverished areas before, but I never at the scale that I saw over there where there's one day where I was on a bus for about 8 hours driving through the countryside and after 8 hours, I did not see one, one structure that we could even call in the united states a shack you know these were like most of the what i was seeing was like okay well you had three walls and not the fourth one or a roof you know it was just like people were in these these things that that didn't even have four walls and a roof and that was their dwelling you know that was where they lived and the nicest the happiest the kindest people and, you know, and, and, and talking to some of the locals, you know, the things they would say is like, today's a good day because today I get to feed my family, you know? And that's like, it's really sad, right? It's really sad that there is that level of poverty in that widespread. And obviously it's a separate conversation about fixing those kind of problems. But, you know, one of the take-home points really from that, I think is like, Gratitude is not always easy to access when we feel bad. It's, you know, it's, and it's also important to, I think, mention that when we're talking about gratitude, gratitude doesn't have to diminish pain just because we're grateful for the fact that we have a bed to lay in doesn't mean that it's not also simultaneously like hard and crappy that you can't even hardly get out of that bed. Right. Right. So I think that's important, but but one of the biggest take home points of the Philippines story really is that despite a lot of tragedies despite a lot of trauma all of that like gratitude is still always available to us and even if it's just to like provide a moment where your adrenaline is not surging where you're oriented to something that is positive even if it's just a momentary relief from all of that it does remind the nervous system that it doesn't have to be on overdrive all the time and it does provide that advantage
0: to the healing process I love that story so much and, and that takeaway. All right. So we've talked about food, sleep mindset. Is there anything else that people can start to help with this healing process and, or, or take it further?
1: Oh, of course. Like we, you know, we have to mention exercise when we talk about lifestyle, right? So one of the biggest things about exercise, I think that's important for people to understand is like. From a healing and longevity perspective, we could orient to like the number one most important goal in part is putting on muscle. Like putting on muscle has been so connected to anti-aging. We see that when we put on muscle like when we tear down our muscle and we rebuild it there's studies showing that if somebody is insulin resistant where they're having pre-diabetes or, or diabetes, where the muscle say that was pre-exercise actually was insulin resistant and we tear it down and we actually rebuild the new cells that are rebuilt are no longer insulin resistant. So we got to get that muscle breakdown. So what this means is like cardio's you know lovely. Like, you know, it's great to walk, it's great to move, it's great to have that mobility, it's great to not sit so much. All of that is good and one of the things to make sure that you're doing is doing something that is like a weight lifting, weight bearing type of activity, because we've got to break down the muscle enough to rebuild it stronger. That's when you're really seeing a lot of the anti-aging, a lot of the, the lowering blood sugar, a lot of the cellular repair really comes from, from breaking that tissue down. And then so the secondary thing on that, I think, apart from the weight bearing to, that I sort of, you know, just mentioned in this whole statement is making sure we're not sitting too much. You know, people are saying like sitting is the new smoking. And I think we're going to see that more and more because so many of our you know jobs are in front of the computers now and we're constantly in a stage where our our hips are like in flexion, right? And mm-hmm. our shoulders are forward and our neck is forward and all these different things. So I actually one of the things that I do to kind of combat this is I work at a sit stand desk and I actually have a treadmill under my desk. So I will get, you know, several miles on an average day just walk, you know, just as part of my like work routine. And I can tell in my body when that is happening and when it's not. And then the thirds, if we say weights, we say, you know, sitting the new smoking, sitting less. And just so you know, you guys, like, like, it's great to have this like fancy desk that I have, but if you're, you know, cost sensitive, even you can find really, really like cheap table units for you know, reasonable fifty dollars on Amazon that are basically um, just on top of a table, and they just are on a lift where they can put the computer at the height you need for the right ergonomics. So you can do that, even if you don't can't afford that right away. There's ways to do things with stacking books and just you know being creative around household items to bring your computer up to eye level. So. Don't think if if you are cost sensitive that just because you can't go out and spend money on a desk on high, you know, with hydraulics, that there are these other ways you can you can do that. So we said we said muscle, we said not sitting. And then the other big thing in the exercise that kind of blends over, we could say to a slightly different category a little bit really comes down to mobility. And especially as we, you know, we age more and more, it's like having some sort of mobility routine, stretching routine, something to keep the joints flexible and, and something to keep the joints open. Because what typically happens over time when we are lifting and doing things like no matter how many, many, much any of us try to have perfect form when we move our body, there's going to be moments where we don't. And what happens with that is the muscles contract in different ways. The joints get pulled out of alignment and really doing a proper stretching and mobility type of routine can be extremely helpful. I'm a big fan of Kelly Starrett's work. He has a book called The Supple Leopard. You can find him at thereadystate.com. And he has done a lot of work with really understanding how to use lacrosse balls and softballs and things like that to position them in joints to actually allow for joints to fully open and ligaments to return to their normal flexibility. But there's a lot of different ways you can do mobility work and it doesn't have to be his by any means, just that it's something that is part of your regular routine. If you can get even five to 10 minutes a day of some sort of mobility work in, it can go a long way.
0: I love all of that. Mobility is actually one of my favorites. Like I love to incorporate mobility into my strength training and into my cardio. Um, I know, and I didn't really kind of understand the value of it until I had a trainer who that's his whole focus. He helps people recover from like hip and knee replacement surgery and things like that. And his big thing is mobility. And so when he was teaching the class, I was like, I had the best body, and I had the least amount of pain, my massage therapist was like, you barely even need me anymore. And it was, it was fantastic. So this actually, I actually had a client yesterday say, I want to work out, but I'm in so much pain that I can't even hold the weights and I can't even walk. So for these, for those of people who are literally in that much pain where would you suggest they start when it comes to incorporating movement? Cause we know they need movement to reduce the pain, but we also know it's temporarily going to make the pain worse. Right. So how, do, how would you talk to, to that person or to those, that group of people?
1: Yeah. Thank you for this question. Cause I think it's a really common pre- question in the chronic disease community. So, you know, definitely starting with something like mobility, if that is possible for you is a reasonable idea, but another thing that I would absolutely consider is sometimes when we are finding that movement is making things worse, we're in that amount of pain, sometimes this is due to toxicity issues. And sometimes what's happening is like through incorporating, you know, breathing in toxins, toxins on our food, toxins that just end up in our body, even if we're making good choices, right? Even if we're eating organic and we're filtering our water and we're eliminating toxins from these sources, everybody encounters toxins. And due to genetic anomalies that a lot of us have, where we don't break down toxins super easily, they can build up in our body. And one of the things that toxins can do when they build built up is they can actually cause our lymphatic system to shut down. And our lymphatic system is the part of our body that moves toxins. The lymphatic system's also part of our body that helps us to uh, our white blood cells to function, helps us fight infections and that sort of thing. And one of the things is that when we are not moving, our lymphatic system doesn't move. And so when we start moving for some people, it's actually starting to mobilize toxins more. And for some people that is part of the pain picture. So I've seen situations where if people go in, like they're having a hard time with movement, if they go and get a lymphatic massage, which is a very, very gentle massage where the therapist only puts about a half pound of pressure on the skin because the lymphatics are very superficial. They're kind of at the top part of the body. And, and that can actually help with movement of the toxins out. And so that can be really, really beneficial. And sometimes if we do that, we'll find that, oh, then people are able to do, you know, some exercise. But the biggest thing I would pay attention to is starting really, if you're like, oh, this causes pain, you know, there's, we want to make sure that it's like, okay, what type of pain is it? If it's like pain because it's your knees out of alignment and it's caught, it's worsening the arthritis, so, you know, that sort of thing. We probably don't want to do that, but starting with as simple as like, how do you feel after two minutes of walking? How do you feel after doing five air squats? You know, air squats are just where you do squats without weights and, you know, and these types of things and not just track what your how you're, Feeling when you're doing it, but what you really want to track is how you're feeling like an hour, two hours after in the next day, because sometimes what we find is that when we're like getting into an exercise routine again, it's hard for that body initially, but you'll start noticing like. Oh, I actually do have more energy, all right, or I don't, and so using your body as that cue for okay, this is a okay thing or not okay. And there are certain people that I find that early on in their treatment process, exercise is not the right thing, and they're not there. And if that's the case, like it might be as simple as you know doing these types of stretches in bed or pulling your head over it in bed. Um, and doing those types of things, and you can't do any of that, then that's where you really want to be working with some sort of therapist, whether it's a physical therapist, a chiropractor, a massage therapist using other types of technologies like, um, near infrared, te- near infrared light technology. I've seen help people with a lot of pain and reduce some of inflammation locally so that then you can start exercising. So if you're finding you can't do anything that I would look into some of these other therapies that will help mobilize things and move things for you. So then
0: you can start doing it yourself. That's incredibly helpful. Um, just a kind of side question. What do you think about dry brushing? Like if somebody, to, dic- Can't even afford. Let's say somebody's super low income. Kid would dry brushing be a good option for moving the lymphatic system, especially if they're in a lot of pain in the beginning?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Dry brushing is great, and dry brushing just so everybody knows where you're is where you're taking like a kind of a long handled bristle brush. You can find them super cheap. Yeah. They're like, like four
0: Like it's yeah, super cheap.
1: Exactly. It's super cheap. And then you just, you know, use it on your skin. Always. Um, you also want to apply light pressure, right? So it's not super hard. And the idea is that you always want to do in strokes or motions that are towards the heart, um, just cause that helps the lymph move in the proper direction. We want the lymphatics to move the direction they're supposed to go, not anti, but that's a good one. Another great one for people on a budget is, um, hot and cold contrast. So it's like, that can be as simple as like a warm shower and then do a quick 30 seconds. like you know, as cold as you can handle and back to warm and repeat that a few times. Like that's another super easy way of, of moving the lymph that can sometimes be a huge for pain reduction as well. And even Epsom salt baths, you know, can, can help sometimes for that. It's not, that's not going to be as Lymph moving, but that's just another way of sometimes detoxing the body because that can provide if you use enough heat in your Epsom salt bath that can produce some level of detoxification. So that can be another way of just flushing things in a in a cheap way as well.
0: Awesome, thank you so much for yeah. that. All right, so we've talked about those. Let's see, we've talked about diet, sleep, mindset. Now we've talked about exercise. What else is there? Anything else that people could do starting today? to help?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely from a lifestyle perspective around things like water and alcohol. So we really need to touch on that. And we'll throw caffeine into this conversation too. caffeine, you know, it's like when we're looking at things like coffee and green tea, there's enough research on the health benefits of these things that I don't feel like we can make a blanket statement for people. Like I see people where it's like caffeine is a great thing for them and they feel better with it. And other people wear a tiny little bit of caffeine and their nervous system is completely wrecked. Mm-hmm. So just being aware of caffeine, working to not drink it late in the day because of its impact, possible impacts on sleep and on your nervous system, water, you know, I think there's like, there's a lot of talk about water these days and it's importance, but yet I still see, a uh, abundance of people that are still just drinking tap water. And if you go to ewg.org, the environmental working group, you can find a lot of information on water and on city water all over the country and how, you know, what is in it. Like, you know, there's a lot of tap water that has a ton of lead in it, you know, and that's not from lead-based, you know, piping or anything like that. It's from just lead ending up in the city water, not getting filtered out correctly. We see, you know, there's microbes that can end up in water. There's toxins that can end up pharmaceuticals. in pharmaceuticals, so, Pharmaceuticals, exactly. So it's a on and on and on. So, you know, there's different filtration systems out there. There's, you know, carbon filters, there's reverse osmosis. Um, and and having some sort of filter like that, an easy one to get is um, like a Berkey system. Like there's like great reverse osmosis stuff. You can, fil- you know, put your up to your sink. You can hook them up to your shower. Those are great. They tend to be a little more costly, but you can find um, some of the smaller Berkeys, which are carbon filtered for a much lower price point. So um, if you can afford the full, you know, like reverse osmosis type of style, I think that's wonderful. Um, another option is just doing like distilled water um, and just going and get, you know, getting distilled water filled up. But if you're living in a place where there's like not a lot of health food stores or food, you know, you're kind of in a food desert, as we could call it, based upon not access. Um, that a Berkey can be a really easy home filtration system that doesn't cost a lot. And then, you know, alcohol is a, an interesting thing because there's definitely, it's like a lot of the research I see on alcohol is there's a lot of correlative studies where it's like, there's studies where it's like, okay, well there's links between the more alcohol you drink and the more breast cancer you get. Right. But these correlative of studies, we have to be very careful because they're not eliminating for things like, okay, well, a person that's drinking a lot of alcohol might also be eating like, you know, a lot of bad fats. They might also be eating like a lot of other toxic things. And so it's, we have to be very careful around like, okay, well, is it alcohol causing this or is it just the overall general lifestyle? My general feelings on, on alcohol from a chronic disease standpoint is I've seen situations where people like with chronic disease and they have a drink and all of a sudden it's like symptoms go away. You know, I I have one woman that had like right now in my practice where it's like the moment she has alcohol, she has these crazy migraines, this crazy brain fog. She has one glass of wine and everything is normal. You know, it's like, so it's like, we see these situations that are wild where alcohol like sometimes is eliminating symptoms. So this is a case by case basis. You know, I, I, a great goal of you know is like having you know two to four drinks a week because alcohol, a lot of us enjoy it in our lives. It's a social thing. So rather than saying totally eliminate it, you know, way of working with it is like okay, we'll have it in moderate amounts and just work to not overdo it. Sometimes in chronic disease, it's just better to get it out long term. But if we're talking about general lifestyle things you know, just don't overdo it. Really be careful that you're not doing things like, you know, captains and Cokes where you're like combining alcohol and sugar or alcohol and these fruit juices that have high fructose corn syrup. So in my mind, like my personal feeling on that is like, it depends, pay attention to how it impacts you. And if you think it's not impacting you negatively, if you're not getting, you know, worse worse symptoms from it, that sort of thing, then, you know, then keep it in, but just practice moderation with it.
0: I love, And so, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I love that you talk moderation because so many people are like, Nope, zero, not a none. And it's just not realistic. And I'm a health coach. So I don't always go with the doctor's advice. Cause sometimes I need people to, to stick with it. Right. And it's like, I would rather you do like this one thing sometimes because it makes you happy than to like be completely miserable and feel like you're missing out. So I love that you talk about moderation because really it's just about quality of life matters and being yeah. healthy is not supposed to be miserable. You're not supposed to feel like you're missing out on things, but what is and what that looks like is really important.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think the saying like a healthy body is a resilient body is an important thing around, like, if you're finding that you go out and it's like Friday night and you're out at a restaurant and you have a piece of chocolate cake and you have a glass of wine and, you know, and you're not doing anything like wild. It's not like you're partying till four in the morning. It's like, okay, you had a dessert, you had a glass of wine, you had two glasses of wine. And if you're feeling like the next day you wake up and you're feeling horrible, to me, that's a symptom, you know, to me, that's not saying red wine's bad or chocolate cake. We should never have a moment with it. Like, yeah, we want to not do that stuff every day, but if you can't on occasion handle that, to me, that's actually a symptom that's saying there's something going on in your body where you're not able to process that sugar. That's you know, an occasional treat or process that alcohol, we got to look and see what sort of imbalance is going on there because what a healthy body looks like is one that can have these indulgences and still function really, really, really well, but we don't have those indulgences every day.
0: Perfect. Awesome. And then we were going to talk about, so we talked about water, we talked about alcohol. Now we need to talk about caffeine. Yeah, so caffeine. I mean, like I had mentioned
1: around, like the the green tea and the um, the coffee. and the biggest thing with caffeine is also bringing us to this moderation to the bio individuality of it. So I think coffee and, and um, herbal tea or caffeinated tea can be great, great for many, many, many people, and many people feel really wonderful about that on them, and, and they're also rituals, right? But I've noticed throughout my own life. And even in one of my first books, I talk in that book about like not using, you know, I was at a point in my life where I was sharing where I wasn't using caffeine at all. And now I use caffeine. And so there, I think an important take home message with this is like, sometimes it's going to work for your body and there might be times where it doesn't. And just also be, you know, cognizant, like with anything else, like quality matters, you know, getting really good quality. There are things sometimes in coffee, there are toxins. If you do decaf, we have to be very careful about the, um, the way it's the decaffeination process. Cause a lot of the decaffeination process can use petroleum based solvents to get the, the caffeine out, which is, you know, think about petroleum going down your, your mouth, like not an ideal situation. Right. So there's like, if you're more interested in decaf as a way of eliminating caffeine, you want to use a process called a Swiss water decaf, method. And that's pretty easy to find. There's even like, like, I know, like in my area in Golden, we have a couple local rotisseries that advertise, right, that they um, use a Swiss water decaf method. So you can find that online, you can find that a lot of your grocery stores, you can find that process at even some um, local rotisseries. So just being aware of that, being aware of the quality that uh, mold toxins are in some coffees and that sort of thing that you want to be careful about that. And then just really watching your body and seeing it's like some people I know are super caffeine sensitive, where it's like a tiny little bit, will send them to the roof and make them anxiety, you know, anxious and jittery and those sorts of things. So You just want to watch your body's reactivity of it. There is a genetic anomaly that some people have, which will make them a fast metabolizer of caffeine or a slow metabolizer of caffeine. So if you, you know, if you're somebody that has noticed like, you know what, you can have an espresso after dinner and it does nothing to you. Well, one. I would definitely go back to our original conversation and test that where, you know, wear a sleep tracking device because it might be affecting you and you might not realize it. But two, it's possible that you could be somebody that is a super fast metabolizer of caffeine where your body just breaks it down so fast that it really doesn't have a huge impact on you. So there's definitely health benefits. There's definitely some people that don't do well. So get good quality. And then just be careful about watching your symptoms and your reactivity to know if that's a beneficial or a harmful lifestyle
0: choice for you. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. This has been absolutely incredible. We haven't talked about your functional medicine training school at all. You know, we've talked about all of this amazing information and I kind of want people to know more about what you do, your passion, how you're training other practitioners.
1: Yeah. So all of my, I have a kind of a base site for all of my work, which is just my name. It's drdianemuller.com. And so on there, you can find information about my clinical practice, but also about the school that you're, you're talking about. And so I have an online school where I help train other docs, other clinicians, we have health coaches, we have MDs. So we have a lot of different types of degrees, naturopaths, PAs, nurse practitioners, acupuncturists. So there's a lot of different people that wind up in our programs And really the, you know, the idea with it is to help support people, um, clinicians who want to take more of a functional perspective and spend a lot of time updating the course content. So the other thing that a lot of people get out of there is just, you know, it's really, really hard as clinicians oftentimes to find the time to stay up to date with the recent research. But I spend, uh, you know, I spend time every week um, actually in my schedule where it's blocked off, where I'm not seeing patients that is dedicated to that. So some of the other advantage of the course content really is helping clinicians that are like, I don't have time to spend in like figuring all this stuff out.
0: It's a resource for you to help you with that as well. I love that. I definitely wanted to highlight that because I do have practitioners that listen to the podcast as well the average what practitioner, not naturopath so much, but like in me- conventional medicine doctors, what 17 years behind, you know, the current research. And so having resources to be able to kind of stay up to date and, you know, not only learn what you specialize in, but you know, the whole holistic, cause the body, you know, a foot's still connected to the body and sometimes a problem in the foot's connected to the spine or the hip or the head, <laughs> you know, yeah. all of that. <laughs> so, um, Thank you so much for joining me today, for sharing your wisdom. Is there anything else you want to leave with our listeners before we end?
1: I think in general, two things. One is it's almost never one thing. You know, I've been doing this for, like I said, 12 years, and I've yet to have one client in my practice that there's only been one root cause. So I think that orientation around like, okay, well, what, you know, usually I have the question of like, what is, you know, what is this one thing that is causing this? And I really think it's important to get people's minds wrapped around like, it's not one thing. It's one thing. It's several things. Right. And so doing, you know, really thinking more in that holistic way around, if it's a headache, there's probably multiple factors and you're going to really start feeling the best when you can look at all of this stuff and not just say, okay, well, it's gotta be just this, um, you know, one particular food I'm eating, it's, it's going to be almost always more than that. I'm sure there's an exception out there, but, um, you know, that's a general rule and, you know, and second, be kind with yourself in the process, you know, this healing and this returning back to wellness is a journey. Like you said, it's not linear. There's some days in the healing process that are going to feel great. And you're going to think that you're making amazing strides and you can have a day like that followed with like a really bad day where it might feel like you're not getting any better. And that's a normal part of the process, you know, it's, it's not a straight line. It's kind of like a curvy upward way that if we put a line through it, it looks straight, but the process is not straight. So you're going to have those down days. Don't, you know, work really hard to not get down on yourself when you have them. And if you do, then work really hard to be kind to yourself and not blame yourself for getting down. Right. Right. So, yeah, I think that's what I have to leave with you, leave you with, and thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much. And for our listeners, if you want to connect to Dr. Diane, I will have all of the links and stuff in the show notes. So be sure to, you know, go to her website, check her out. And if you're in the area or you do also do telehealth all over the world. So, you know, if you really resonate with her, you'll be able to connect with her that way. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. If you found this episode helpful, would you do me a favor and help others find it by leaving a review, sharing a screenshot on social media, or sharing the link with a friend? By you sharing what you've learned, others are able to find this podcast and join our community. Be sure to check out my website, www.roadtolivingwhole.com, for over 160 delicious recipes a variety of meal plans, and a blog packed full of even more healthy living tips. If you'd like to learn more about how to work with me as your coach, you can schedule a free consult through www.roadtolivingwhole.com backslash health-coaching backslash. Until next time, friend. Bye.